through 13. And to the angel in the, of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. See that no one, so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will give him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, it is always an extraordinary privilege of your people to be able to gather together and to come. And to come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to open your word. Lord, we are so thankful because we know that as we gather, we don't simply come uh, uh, to, to be part of a club or to go through motions or to fulfill duties. When we come together, we draw near to you. When we open your word, we hear from you. Lord, we thank you that your word is a living word, a faithful word, a trustworthy and true word throughout every generation. That it is powerful, meaningful, and relevant. God, that it works to change and, and improve the way that we think, change and improve the way that we, what we believe and how we behave. We thank you for the power of your word by, through your spirit to transform your people. As we're here, Lord, we ask that you would once again take your word and impress it upon us, impress it upon our minds, our hearts, our souls, that we would understand it. Lord, I ask that you would help me to speak your word very clearly so that everyone can understand. I ask that you would push it deep into us so that everyone would be impacted and affected. And that we would move forward and live and speak to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the letters to the seven churches, we today have reached church number six. This is the church at Philadelphia. Now, this is the one that's a little more challenging than the others, at least to try to make sure that we stay focused, because this has nothing to do with Philadelphia, PA, okay? Because most of the other ones, if I say Smyrna and Sardis, those don't immediately go to local towns or cities in America that you're familiar with. When I say Philadelphia, some image 
it comes up in people's minds. It may be the Liberty Bell. It could be uh, all kinds of thoughts. But this is not that Philadelphia. This is a different Philadelphia. The basic meaning of the term Philadelphia, for those don't know, it's a combination of two words, one of which means love, and the, and, and, and the other which means brotherly. So it's the city of brotherly love. Now, I'm not sure if Philadelphia, PA, rightly represents that or not, but this church here surely did represent it. We know that in times when, when, the, when John the Apostle wrote 1 John, he was writing to a group of people who were saying, we love God, we love the Father, we love Jesus, but then they weren't loving one another. They weren't caring for one another and helping one another at times of need. And he said to them, how can you say that you love God whom you don't see when you do not love your brother, spiritually, who you do see? This is a church where there was much love of God and there was much love of one another. This is one of two churches among these seven churches that the letter's written where no corrections are given. Next, as we look at the last of the seven churches, there's no commendations given. No, this church is not doing anything that's glaringly faulty, Philadelphia. Laodicea is not doing anything that's any good. And again, the whole point of these is not so that we can sit here and praise that ancient church and what they did or condemn the other one and what they did. We learn from the good that they did and what is revealed, those things that are pleasing to God, and we press on that we might display the same things and live the same way and also see the ways that other churches fell short and say, God, protect us from those things. May we not fall into those compromises. May we not give in to those unfaithful things. Now, let me tell you just a little bit of a history lesson that we're sometimes doing re regarding this particular city. In this city, Philadelphia, it, it is uniquely poised in this region of these are the churches in Asia Minor. This particular city, Philadelphia, was uh, called by them in those days, Little Athens, because it was, it was an outpost. Really, it was considered the entry point, the door or gateway to Asia Minor. It was a city that, that uh, Rome had established to be like a, sort of like a missionary center. But not missionary in the sense that we think to get the gospel out. It was actually to take these heathenist barbarians who are uncivilized and bring them Roman culture and education and language. So it was the center of what some would call Hellenism, you know, to take those Greek ideas and spread them. This was the key city through, through which uh, they would send and people would go there and they would go out and back from there to try to influence the whole region to become more civilized and more similar. As such, it had all of the different kinds of temples and all of the different kinds of gods. It was a fertile place with them. Um, 
with flowing fields and vineyards. It was a wonderful place in many people's minds to visit. Beautiful architecture, excellent commerce, generally gracious people. This was, it was a prosperous place. But uh, with, with all of that prosperousness, the tendency of those who did not know God is to think that somehow their prosperity is coming from their gods. And that's what uh, people in this world, they tend to take the general mercies of God, allowing them joys and health and happiness and employment and families, and not realizing that all of those things that everybody enjoys, they all come from the hand of our God. Whether they know him or not, whether they acknowledge him or not, whether they believe false gods or not, the reality is this, there is only one God. And that one God has revealed himself in the Bible. That one God, not only in the Bible, but has historically revealed himself predominantly working among the people of Israel and then extraordinarily in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. And now, most uh, globally, through his church. God has made himself known, and this is the God who affords to all men all the good things that they enjoy. And that's why whenever we have something, where we receive something, we give thanks back to God. Because it, it's due to him. Now, I want us to begin to consider this as we, as we now open up the letter he writes to this, the church here. And let us start by looking at the one who is dictating this letter. The one dictating. Because these letters are dictated by Christ to be written down by John and sent. And the, the one who's dictating each one of these begins with an introduction that describes something of Christ's person, his character, his authority, his role, his responsibility. Here it takes this up in verse 7. And it says, the words of the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. The one who opens and no one shuts and who shuts and no one opens. See, now I, I read it slightly different than you're reading because uh, in the original it, it gives an article or a the for each one. He, it first of all describes him as the Holy One. This is very important because when you take this idea of the Holy One, not only does it speak of one who is absolutely, utterly exalted, distinct, and unique, but if you go back to the Old Testament, you see that oftentimes God himself was called the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And here is again one of those times where we clearly have Jesus, the Son of God, Declaring himself the Holy One. Identifying his distinctive deity. Jesus Christ is God the Son. In, in the context of this particular book, the book of Revelation, this is where we even repeatedly, like the book of Isaiah, have saints gathering together, elders falling at, at the feet of God, and crying out to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. Which oftentimes we look at that and we remember, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy. What a unique and extraordinary way of describing that. And there is truth to that. Our God is unique, distinct, and incomprehensible. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Further, the repetition speaks of the, of the, the priority and extraordinary nature of the holiness of God. There is a sense in which so many of the other elements, aspects, uh, and, and uh, characteristics of God could almost always be prefaced with the term holy. For example, people will speak of the holiness of God and then they'll go and speak of the love of God and then they'll go and speak of the wrath of God. I could just as rightly and biblically faithfully say the holiness of God. The holy love of God, the holy wrath of God, because his love is unique, distinct, and extraordinary from all others. His wrath is unique, distinct, and extraordinary from all others. Indeed, holiness pervades every aspect and element of our God. His holy power, his holy wisdom. Is that not right? Because it, 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 he is set apart, consecrated, and extraordinary in all of these things. And further than that, the New Testament reminds us that the Father himself consecrated or sanctified the Son for his work as the Lamb of God. Set him apart. Jesus is the Holy One of God. There could be no other fitting sacrifice who would take upon himself the, the sins of men and would have in himself holiness that he could then place upon men as he took their sin and he took their punishment upon himself, he provided for them holiness and righteousness. That none could ever do. The, the, this is in the, in the masculine singular. That's why I really love the way that the ESV has translated here. The Holy One. There is no Holy Two. And Holy Three among those who have walked this earth. Jesus Christ was distinct. Now there were other men in the past. There are men who walked with God. Like Enoch. But to walk with God as complimentary as that is, to walk as a friend of God, Abraham, as complimentary as that is, is different than walking as God in every perfection. Jesus was the Holy One. And further it says then, the True One. He is the Holy One. He is the true one in revelation 6 it says the 10 it says this they cried out with a loud voice oh sovereign lord now some of the older translations there just say oh lord but this isn't kurios here this is despotes this is a different word that speaks of god's absolute sovereignty over all creation his mastery and authority over all creation not the, the general recognition and submission to him as Lord, Kurios, but his, he is sovereign Lord. And it says of him in Romans, Revelation 6, 11, O sovereign Lord, 
holy and true. How long before you judge the earth? He is the holy one. He is the true one. The, the term true can carry two different senses with it if you think about it. One is true and not false. Men can say things and you wonder, is that true? Does he really mean that? Whatever Jesus says, it's true. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. There were lots of teachers that had come. There were lots of rabbis that had come. But when Jesus came, it was interesting. Even in his day, those who would listen to him, the scripture said, were amazed. And they would marvel at him because he spoke as one having authority. And not as one of their scribes did. Jesus wasn't sharing, you know, this great teacher interprets this passage this way and this great teacher thinks it means that and some people this and some people that and and this godly man this and this godly man that and we get a lot of that in teaching and preaching because we're just men <laughs> and we don't hundred percent in and of ourselves know the truth Jesus did everything he ever said was true he didn't have to consider what former prophets said what other teachers taught, whatever he declared was truth. 100% all of the time. Every promise will prove true. Again, when we think about even the word of God in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, it says this, every word of God proves true. Do not add to his word or you will be found a liar. Such a strong warning. Jesus, everything he said is true. So uh, when we try to think, well, what am I to believe? I mean, there's so many different religions. And even within Christianity, there's so many different denominations and so many different groups. How in the world am I to know which church is true and which one to follow and which one to believe? That's a good question. And many people have just given up entirely on that. The simplicity is this. Whichever church is not committed to the opinions of man, not even commi committed to the opinions of the man doing most of the speaking, but the man doing most of the speaking will say, don't just listen to me, listen to Christ. If ever I say something that is not true to the word of God, follow it and don't follow me. My responsibility and my commitment, God help me, is to only say what Jesus has said what he has revealed to us from his own mouth and through his mouthpieces, which are those apostles through whom he's given us the New Testament. Not only is it true and not false, but this word also is representative of true and not fake. So not only trustworthy to be believed, but genuine, authentic. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one to whom all authority has been given. He's the one. Genuine, authentic, unquestionable. And th so this is um, such a, a wonderful sense when we understand how that unfolds. Then it even, even goes a little bit bigger and it says... The one who holds or has 
the key of David. Now, those are strange phrases sometimes to us. And when a, a phrase is strange to us, that's when you need to be really careful with the preacher. <laughs> because he can get creative at, with what the key of David is. You know? And generally speaking, if he says, this is what the key of David means, we don't know any better. And if he says it, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. We tend to follow. Well, the scripture says that he has the key of David and does not give us many other details about that. Even if you look back to David, what key did David have? There's no specific key key mentioned with reference to David. So what does that mean? Again, part of this will come back to learning and, and dealing with the fact that the scriptures oft speak in symbolic language. Uh, in the book of Revelation, you're going to have these various beasts with multiple heads, and the multiple heads will have multiple the horns and multiple crowns and when you when you try to visualize them the images that are coming up in your mind is what is that crazy looking animal i don't it, it doesn't even make sense to me well the a key is a common term in the scriptures for authority the authority of david now i want to just begin to to see this because one of the ways that we saw the authority of David manifested, it was manifested in a way, one, in a way that was not expected. Because, generally speaking, if a man is the king, who is the prime optimal candidate to take his place when he's done? The tradition would be his firstborn son. I mean, he's the king. The firstborn son has the birthright, has the right and the place. But David had the authority. And did he give it to his firstborn son? No, he didn't. Did he give it to his secondborn son? No, he didn't. He gave it all the way down to Solomon. David is the one who had the authority. And he had the right to take what? in people's minds, rightly should have gone to his firstborn, but David had the seat of authority and he had the right to say, it will not go there, it will go here. In a real sense, we're going to see the same kind of thing happening for this church here in Philadelphia. You've got a group of Jews gathered together in a synagogue who acknowledge not Christ. And people all would be thinking in their own mind, well, the Jews are the people of the Messiah. The Jews are the people of God. And here, Christ is saying, no, not them. They are not my people. They are a synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but are not. Everyone thinks it should be to them that they will get the benefit. It will not come to them. It will come to you. You are the ones that I am selecting. You are the ones that I am bestowing it on as he gives it to those in the church. And, and so we, we see this, this um, amazing thing. And within the idea of the key as well and the authority, it goes on and presents a second idea. And it says this, the one who shuts and no one can open, and opens, 
and no one shuts. Now, again, I wanted to read, and so let me just go back for a moment. Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two said this, I will place, it's a prophetic verse, I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shut, and he shall shut and none open. So they could not, even though they would be barred from the synagogues and banned from participation, those local Jews in the synagogue, they could ban these proselytes, ban these converts and say, you can't come in among us. You're shut out. And Jesus is saying, you think you can shut them out? What you don't understand is this, you're shut out and it's open to them. It's like, wow. Completely changed. He is giving them an open door. And no one can shut it. I mean, th this is, again, when we talk about the holy one and the true one, his distinctiveness, his singularity, when we talk about his authority and his sovereignty, he opens a door. Who can shut it? He shuts it. Who can open it? No, and so there's two senses in which I want us to really um, to grasp this. Uh, one way, for example, uh, we can see in Acts chapter 14, verse 27 of this. So we go from the one dictating, the first thought that we've considered, the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the key, to the open door. What is this open door that no one can shut? Ver verse 8 says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Acts 14, 27 says this. When they arrived and were gathered together as a church, they declared that God had done all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, at this, at this time, as you're going through, say, Acts chapter 10 through 15, this was a shocking thing to the early Jews. Wait a second. They're also included? They're also accepted? They're also welcome? God has opened the door to them? Yes. And what was even more shocking for them as it came to chapter 14 and 15, the open door to them, it, it, the, the coming in through that door is on the basis of faith. But for the, for the Old Testament Jew, no, you want to come through this door into the synagogue, you need to get yourself circumcised. You need to go through all of these various rituals and sacrifices and cleansing. You need to become a proper proselyte through all of these different events and then only you are qualified to come in jesus comes in and he cancels all of those outward requirements of the law and of the legal system imposed by the scribes and the pharisees and he says here is the open door an open door of faith to the gentiles again the, the sense of the open door in Luke chapter 13, Scripture says this in verse 24 and following. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. 
Now, why are they going to seek to enter and not be able? Well, you're going to see why they're not able. Because once it's shut, no one can open it. In verse 25, it says, once, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and he's, Jesus is saying this to these Jews, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. We were your people. We were the people that you came for. We were the people of your old covenant of your history. And Jesus will say to them in verse 27, but I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. But then he goes on to say this. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. And then look at verse 29. It says, and people will come from east and west and north and south. And recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Here are these, these Jews who accepted not Christ. Who humbled themselves not in faith and repentance. But fought by strict meticulous following of legalism and law. And following their Jewish practices. That somehow they would earn their entrance into the kingdom of God. I tell you. By the keeping of the law. There is no justification. By the works of the law, there is no righteousness. There is only righteousness, forgiveness in Christ. And so he comes and he says, look, this is how it's going to happen. The door's going to be open to people from north, south, east, and west. And they're going to come, recline at the table in the kingdom of God. They're going to be sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the Jews thought, no, 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 Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are our forefathers. They belong to us, and we belong to them. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to bring people from all over the place, north, south, east, and west, who will come in faith, and they will sit at the kingdom of God. And you who have not come in faith, but are trusting in your own religion, trusting in your own works, trusting in your own deeds, and not resting on Christ, you will find as you try to approach, you hit the door. And no amount of screaming effort and demand gets that door open. The door is only open to those who come in Christ. It's an astounding thing. So that's one sense in which when he opens a door that no one can shut, the, the beauty is this. He's opened the door and the door is open to all who come to him in faith and repentance. Which is shocking to people. This would involve people who formerly um, uh, could have had uh, five, six former spouses and broken relationships. Uh, been in and out of prison for various reasons. A, a list of sins, some known and some secret. All of those things don't prohibit someone. Men might make a list of things. These things disqualify you. All those things do disqualify you. But when by grace through faith 
you come to Christ in genuine repentance, those things are no longer held against you. An entrance has been provided for you in Christ. So that's, that's the beautiful thing. People will make that list. But no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the power of God is not too weak to change your heart. He's not unable to save you. God is able to save all he pleases. And so don't think, I'm too far. There's none too far. I'm too dirty. There's none too dirty. I'm too deep. There's none too deep. It's too dark. It's never too dark for him to shed his light, to rescue, ransom, and redeem. Because Christ on the cross paid it all. But here, in that open door to all who come, it's also a closed door. For those who think that they're going to get in because they were baptized, because they participate in the Lord's Supper, because they had church membership, because they went on mission trips, because they prayed and read the Bible occasionally. That's not it. Those are all things you do. Our welcome, our acceptance, our entrance is because of what Christ has done and what God does in us, not what we do. Isn't that amazing? This is a door that no one can open and, and, a, and, and a closed door that no one can change. So he determines who comes in. But even more than that, there might be something more, though that is true. Theologically and biblically true. There may be something even more than that being stated here in this passage. And here's how I want us to get this. Remember, Philadelphia was that place through which they were trying to influence the whole area of Asia Minor to become more Roman, more Greek in their uh, way. In a similar way, it seems that God is looking to this church and says... I have given you an open door. Another use of open door, and I want us to see a few verses on that in the New Testament. Paul asks in Colossians 4 that the, they would pray, the church at Colossae would pray for him. He says this in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us, or may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. An open door can also speak of an opportunity to minister, an opportunity to share. Like this, this town was, was the seat of missionary activity in and through Asia Minor. This church at, at Philadelphia could be a place that has open doors that they can get out and get involved and, and share the gospel of the mystery of Christ in Further in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul says this, For a wide door for effective work was opened for me. A, a, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I'm always thankful for that verse because it just changes things on its head. Modern missions oftentimes will present this idea 
you know that there's an open door. If there's no adversaries, you got no, you got no hindrances, you got no stumbling blocks, you got no problems, everything's easy, you know that it's an open door. Easy doesn't mean an open door. Here he says there's an open door and there are many adversaries. So again, the open door means in the midst of many adversaries, I can see that God is enabling me to plant these seeds in water. And, and, and we, I'm beginning to see the gospel is taking effect and taking root. It's changing this life. It's saving this person. It's transforming this one. Work is going on. Yeah, there's problems. Yeah, there's enemies. But we're seeing that he has opened the door of faith. And this guy came through when I preached the gospel. And this, this woman came through when I preached the gospel. They have turned from everything that they were living for to follow Christ with everything they are. Why door? 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, he had opportunity occasion a door is open i'm going to preach now here the door was open and, and titus wasn't there so he goes to check on titus but we we see that there is this readiness so listen if he opens a door and i think he's wanting them to know this in the church here they are in this church in philadelphia and the jewish synagogue in the area is really persecuting them the tendency can be among some when persecution takes place. You know what? If I just close my mouth, the problems will go away. We'll just stick to ourselves. We'll, we'll follow God. We'll love him. We'll worship him. We'll learn of him. But we're not going to... We're not going to impact the community because that's only creating problems that's not what's happening here and before that could happen god is reminding this church i open the doors and no one can shut it so do not let these adversaries do not let them tell you that the door is shut for evangelism that the door is shut for declaring the grace of god no when i open the door it's open they can't shut it they cannot stop it, and, and it's a, a beautiful thing. Now, so we've seen the one dictating, we've seen the open door, now I want to turn our attention to the observations delivered. Still in uh, verse 8, he says, I know your works. So he knows their works, what they've been up to, what they've been doing. He's set before them an open door no one can shut, and he says this to describe them. You have but little power. Now, I, some of you are thinking, wait a second, I thought you said that this one is only complimentary. He has no negative things to say about them. No negative things to say about them. I want to be realistic with you for a moment. You have but little power. I have but little power. That's who we are. And that's what we are, and that's okay. And there's two, two avenues and aspects in which we can understand this um, of little power. One is, I want us to, to think of it in this way. Don't forget this. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, the scriptures say this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. What? <laughs> For when I am weak, then I am strong. Does that even seem to make logical sense? No, but it doesn't make spiritual sense. Yes! Because we are in those moments, Paul talks about the time that all of those in Asia turned on him, where he was even despairing of life itself. And he said, so that we would learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God. Here's, here's to, to be reminded you are of little strength is a good thing. Because when I'm reminded that I, I have little strength, and yet the circumstance demand much strength, I need help. <laughs> I need strengthening. I need enablement. I need, I need someone to support me and someone to uphold me. If I think I am full of strength, I got this. If I know I have little strength, Lord, help me. I, I, I can't do this. I can't hold up under this. Help me, God. It is good to know we are of little strength. That it says in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, we have this treasure in clay or earthen vessels. We're not big. We're not powerful. We're not strong. We're not beautiful. We're not amazing. Because it needs to be known that the surpassing power belongs to God. Me, little, little. Him, everything. You have little power. So that, it, it, to me, that's not a negative thing. That's, that's just a faithful, and he's the one who's holy and true. And when he says it's true, it's important to know that. Always, our strength will be limited. The, the ability to resist temptations on the basis of our own resolve, very limited. We need the strength of God. That's why Paul, even to, to some of the churches, he writes to them and says, I pray that you will be strengthened in your inner man. Because we all have but little strength. More than that, we also have a circumstance here where this seems to be, historically as we look at this time, this particular church is not dissimilar to church you might be familiar with. Compared to some of the other uh, churches of, that the seven letters were written to, this may have, it is proffered by some, been the smallest. It's not a big in number. It, it seems to have been one that it, it didn't have a lot of people who were wealthy. It didn't have a lot of people who were influential. It didn't have a lot of people who were politically connected. It was potentially also in a very practical earthly sense, you have a little strength. I mean, you, you look at it and you look around yourselves and you're like, how can we have an impact on this community? We don't, we don't, have, we don't have people full of money. We don't have the politically connected. We don't have the big name noble families. How in the world? And, and, and we don't seem like a group that's prospering and really growing so how are we going to have an impact on this community we we have little strength and he's reminding them hey listen 
I open doors that no one can shut. It isn't what God is pleased to do through them doesn't depend on their strength, doesn't depend on their money, doesn't depend upon their political and social influence. When he opens a door, it's open. And when he closes it, it's closed. And he tells them, though you are little, though you are weak, or even here more literally, because you are of little strength, I've opened a door. That's important. If you're strong, you think you can kick down the door yourself. You know, through various campaigns, you know, uh, shock and awe advertising. We're, we're going we're gonna to get the community. Really? No. He knows that they, they don't have any of those means. But they don't need to worry about those means. He opens a door. If he opens a door for effective ministry, get out there with the gospel. Get out there with grace. Get out there with love. All right, let's keep on going. So we see this observation. They have but little power or little strength. But even though they have little power, little strength in the ways that we've looked at, it says of them, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Isn't that beautiful? The idea of kept the word isn't mean, doesn't simply mean they haven't thrown their Bibles away because they don't have Bibles. There's no publishing as yet. They don't have those things. What they have mostly is, is the faithful teaching of God's Word, and kept means more observed and guarded. They are obeying the things that God's Word has told them to do, and they are also, by keeping it, they're guarding it. Someone <coughs> comes in bringing a different teaching? No. <laughs> we're, we're, we're keeping to the word of God. Someone comes in bringing a different gospel? No, no, no. Get out of here. We're keeping <laughs> to the gospel of Christ. We kept to the word. That's wonderful. Secondly, it says here, not only did you keep the word, that, which would be a, a, an obedience and a, and a commitment to truth and true doctrine as this true teaching, uh, but it says, you did not deny my name. Now, there, there are two elements about this as well. Uh, with with uh, the idea of denying name, sometimes that was a literal problem in those days. They could be pulled in by different magistrates, and they could be pulled in because of Caesar worship and told, you need to deny that Jesus is Lord and declare that Caesar is Lord. And if you don't, you die. And history tradition, as we looked at, and there was a Polycarp, a famous historic martyr who was killed in Smyrna, the history and tradition tells us that there were more martyrs, more people who died for the name of Christ in Philadelphia than did over in Smyrna. They did not deny his name even unto death. And more than that, there's another kind of denying his name. When you talk about a person's name, particularly in the biblical sense of it, a person's name represents their character and, their, and, and who they are and, and those, those particular qualities. Um, what, let me give a, a, a simple example. Um, 
generally speaking, as a rule, all kinds of people have different things, but I myself do not take, buy, purchase, or drink hard liquor. And if I was to send somebody to the local shop that I shop all of the time, and they go to, and they go to check out buying certain things, and they've got my card, and the person looks at, oh, yeah, I know Jason. This is a, yeah, yeah, I'm here shopping for him. These things I'm buying there, I, I'm buying them for him. I'm, I'm like shopping in his name. These things for him, he's paying. As they look and as uh, whiskey and vodka come across the thing, that the person at the checkout would be like, uh, there's a problem here because I know this is not for Jason. <laughs> he has shopped here for years and he doesn't take these things. So you're, you're saying that you're shopping for him and you're here, but I know these things are not from him. There's a breakdown. There's an inconsistency. Not denied my name is, can be not only that you didn't deny it, you held to my name when, when demanded to deny it, but there is a form of godliness that denies the power. There is a way that someone can say, I belong to Jesus, but deny him with their life. I belong to Jesus, and then they lie. I belong to Jesus, and then they mistreat others. I belong to Jesus, and then they steal or act selfishly or act greedily. Does that even make sense? No. In a sense, you're, you're declaring his name with your mouth, and you're denying his name with what you're doing. Well, this church, they didn't deny him, whether it was before magistrates and governors and rulers, and they did not deny him with their life. You know, we're not oft called upon in this world threatened if you deny Jesus. No, most of us aren't tempted in, in church circles, tempted to deny Jesus. But the question is, are there many Church members, professing believers, who deny Jesus. It's how they live. Their conduct in the workplace, with coworkers, towards employees, in the family, with loved ones. Are we denying him? It's hypocritical to declare him out of one side of our mouth and deny him out of the other. The church in Philadelphia did not do that. They kept it. They did not deny. They observed. They loved. They were committed. They were unflinching, unwavering, and they did not deny. It, whether it was outward persecution or whether it was uh, practical temptations, they stayed true to his name. They stayed true to his character. They stayed true to what's pleasing in his sight. Okay. And so we've seen the observations, they kept the word, they did not deny the name. And now I want us to look at the oath declared. That we're coming down a, a few verses later, and it says this. Because, verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. See, they kept his word. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. The keepers of his word... Those who have guarded it and preserved it and been committed to it, they will be kept. They will be guarded. They will be preserved. They will be protected. 
Those that have not let go of God's word can know with confidence whatever comes and whatever happens, he is not letting go of us. As we have kept his word, he will keep his people. Now, for a lot of people that, 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 that plays into their various understandings of end times and how all that's going to work out, this passage is not working out for us or declaring to us those details. And, and I think if our focus becomes on those things, then we're missing the point. The point is he, he has us. He holds us. He keeps us. He preserves us. He protects us. And he brings us to himself. That's a confident position to be in. And so what a wonderful oath he has committed himself to be the keeper of those who keep his word. And more than that, he, te- he, he gives them a word of encouragement. He says, hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown." Now, I think part of that is just that they need to recognize this. Hard times are a-coming. Attacks are a-coming. Temptation is a-coming. Hold fast to it so that no one will seize your crown. When you say that, it's because here's what's going to be happening. People are trying to seize it from you. They're trying to get it from you, so hold fast to it. It's, it's sort of an inherent warning. It's not going to get any easier from here on forward. So you just keep holding on. You keep doing what you've been doing. Because what you've been doing has a crown afforded to it. Stay the course. Don't let them steal it from you. And then look at the wonderful, wonderful thing to those who conquers. And we get to conclude with this. For those who conquer, still this is part of, of that oath. To those who conquer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, that's an odd thought. Again, it's figurative language. I'm, I'm going to turn into a pillar? I don't want to do that. Well, the focus you've got to understand is this. They were being told, you are barred from the synagogue. You can't come there. You can't come into the local synagogue. Then you don't have the right, if you were to ever go to Jerusalem, to enter the temple. So the thought is, you are out. You are not accepted. You are not welcome. And here is, no, 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 listen to me. I will make you a pillar. Not only are, are you able to come in, but this is where you dwell. You are locked. You are solid. You are sure. And that's what a pillar did. A pillar was something that was sure, that was stable, that held in place. Not only would they be a pillar, and they would not only be able to enter, but they would be able to be there and dwell there and commune with God and enjoy His presence. But then He says three things, and I'm going to write on you three things. Now, this is not a reference to tattoos, please. This is a, uh, uh, they did inscribe things on pillars in those days, but He says, what I'm going to write on, the, three things are going to write on you. The name... Of my God. So, you know, so the first one is almost this declaration of ownership. This one belongs to God. And then the second thing he's going to write on them is the name of the city of my God. 
the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. In Galatians chapter 4, it refers to the new Jerusalem that comes from above. She is our mother, making those who are children of the promise, those who have faith in Christ, as those who are the ones who receive the eternal inheritance. So, so here, there's a sense in which when you look at this, it carries these ideas with them where uh, I will write by God's name, owner, uh, ownership. I will write the name of New Jerusalem, citizenship. And I will write my own new name. What is that name? Don't know. But we know this, his own name. That, that I guess, would it be in a sense of membership. Why? Because he's the head of which we are all members. In him we are made heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We get to share in his suffering. We get to share in his glory. We get to share in all things with him. And so I'm going to write these names on you. It carries this, this wonderfully broad and powerful sense of ownership, citizenship, membership. It is absolutely full inclusion. In the book of uh, Isaiah, it says uh, that people will come from other territories. It, even it says Rahab, which, which is a name that hails back to Egyptians, not Jericho, oftentimes in the scripture. Uh, Rahab will come, and it will be said of her, she was born there. What? How was she, who's just come to this city, born there? It makes no logical sense. You know it doesn't. But it makes spiritual sense once again. Because what happens? The new Jerusalem that from above. When we are born of faith. Born from above. Born of God. Born anew. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are enrolled above. So when we look at this passage today, it carried certain things. The one dictating, the holy one, the true one, the sovereign one with authority to shut and open. The open door that he admits and he refuses and he provides ministry opportunities and no one can put an end to that. The observations, you have little power but he has abundant power. You've kept my word and not denied my name. The opinions decried, they said they're Jews, but are not because a true Jew is one inwardly. It's a spiritual condition, as it says in Romans chapter two. And the oath, you've kept my word, hold fast. I will make you a pillar. You will never go out. And I write on you the name of my God, ownership. The name of the city of my God, citizenship. And my own new name, membership and participation with all that is Christ's. Amen? Let's pray.